This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2016. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Genesis chapter 6. And while you do that, I'm going to turn to two scriptures in the New Testament. Uh, Luke 17 and Matthew 24. So you go to Genesis 6, and I have come now to Matthew 24, reading from verse 38. Uh, These are the words of Jesus. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came, and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And then again, Luke 17. Similarly, in verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. These words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 uh, were in relation to his second coming and the judgment that would follow. But apart from that, they validate the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. Now, this is vitally important because the world is in denial that such an event ever happened. Atheists, evolutionists, most paleontologists, geologists, scientists deny that that ever took place. That it's simply just folklore, ancient stories without any reality. Sadly, many liberal Bible schools have also bought into the denial of the flood of Noah not wanting to look and sound foolish in the eyes of the scientific world. Uh, They look for some metaphorical reason in this account. And so they don't want to believe in a literal flood. The problem is Jesus doesn't give us an option. Jesus believed in a real Noah and a literal flood. And he used it in his preaching about judgment to come. And the trouble is, if we don't believe it, then what else do we not believe? Do we not believe that the great fish swallowed Jonah? Do we not believe that the Red Sea literally opened up when they went through on dry ground? Do we not believe in a literal resurrection? Do we not believe in a literal second coming of Christ? Because the problem is, once you start denying a literal event that even Jesus himself attested to, then what else are you going to disbelieve? And so sadly, in many, many liberal Bible schools and many churches today, 
They're in denial about what is happening. But people actually... They actually don't believe this, not because it's not true, because the fossil record proves it, but because of what it leads to, the judgment to come. That's the reasoning. And so, if you don't believe in the judgment to come, then you don't believe in the Word of God. And if you don't believe in the Word of God, you don't believe in God. And so that gives you an out for everything, to do whatever you like without any ramifications or anything else, any consequences. And so it's vitally important that we understand that this was a literal, real event. Now, there are those to say, there are those who say, even evangelicals, well, what does it matter? It's the Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. We've got Christ. He went to the cross. He shed his blood. We're saved. We're going to heaven. What does it matter if people argue over those events? That matters a awful lot because we're going to make Jesus out a liar because Jesus attested to it. The fossil record proves that if there was a worldwide flood, then you would expect to find fossils all over the world. And that's exactly what we find. Fossils all over the world. Even fossils in the Himalayas. The Grand Canyon, all the layers of sediment that has turned to rock over the years. All of them has fossils and it's a mile above sea level. And so as far as the fossil record is concerned, there is no question about it. It's there as evidence. But that evidence is ignored. Or it's tried to be explained away. Why? <coughs> so that the implications that would follow is ignored. There was only one reason for a worldwide flood, and that was the worldwide judgment of God. That's the only reason for it. And so to disbelieve there's a worldwide flood, then that gets you out of the judgment of God. And so in Genesis chapter 6, uh, let's read some of this together. Genesis chapter 6. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord." 
Now, the first few verses of that are controversial. Opinion is divided on who were the sons of God that went in unto the daughters of men. And there's two diverse opinions, and I'm not going to get into the arguments over it this morning, particularly in a mixed audience where there's children. There's one belief that these were fallen angels that had cohabitated with women. Another belief that these were the, uh, the sons of Cain, who married into the sons, married into the daughters of Seth. The ungodly line of Cain married into the godly line of Seth. But be that as it may, you could argue those things to your blue in the face. What we do know is whatever that is, whatever that was, the consequences were great. And it produced such corruption and violence and evil in the world that even God himself rude the day he had ever made man. And so this was wickedness to a high degree. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Shem Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and earth was filled with violence, so that God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, and make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and so forth. We'll read a little bit of that later on in the dimensions of the ark. And so, <coughs> during this time, the earth was as wicked and as corrupt as it possibly could be. Every thought of man's heart was evil only continually. Violence filled the earth. Lawlessness abounded. Godlessness prevailed. Corruption was rife. No one felt safe. Imagine living in those conditions. No one felt safe. It was a scary place to be. Crime was epidemic. And danger lurked in every corner. And terror was rampant. Kind of get to feel that history has repeated itself. We're living in dangerous days today, are we not? Now, by this time in early world history, many, many, many millions of people inhabited the earth. And out of all those untold millions, one man was different. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says, Noah was a just man. God justified him. 
He was a righteous man. He was perfect, not faultless or sinless, but blameless. Righteous before God, blameless before men. What a testimony. The more I have read this week about this man Noah, the more I admire him. And I can see why God <laughs> so chose him to do what he did. Noah walked with God, it says. He walked with God. And of all the millions and millions and millions, here was a man who walked with God. When the world was living like the devil, here's a man who walked with God every day, every single day of his life. His great-great-grandfather Enoch was a man who also walked with God. He was a man who, while walking with God, God took him, and he was not, for God took him. He didn't die, wasn't buried, God took him. His grandfather Methuselah, his great-grandfather Enoch, his father Lamech were all born to the line of Seth, and they were godly men. And out of that family came Noah, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Apart from Noah, all these died before the flood came, by the way. In fact, Methuselah, who lived the longest of any man in history, his name basically means when he goes, it will come. He was given a prophetic name. When he goes, it will come. And the flood came the year that Methuselah died. Probably die days before he died. He lived a long time. Second Peter 2.5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. A preacher of righteousness. Isn't it wonderful if in a family line that there is a heritage his great-great-grandfather Enoch prophesied against those, Jude said, who committed ungodly deeds, who were ungodly, committing ungodly deeds and said ungodly things. And that seemed to follow through the line that came to Noah, and Noah became a great preacher of righteousness. This is what singled Noah out. God graced him, and he became a preacher of righteousness. And he preached righteousness not just by his lip, but by his life. His life and his lip was a testimony. It was a message to the world that he lived in. A wicked world hates preachers of righteousness. <laughs> they want their ears tickled. They don't want any talk of sin or judgment to come. And there are many believers today doesn't want any preaching of sin or judgment to come. It's all doom and gloom, they say. It puts people off. Mm. Be that as it may, it's a valid message. And Jesus talked about judgment to come. And Paul spoke of it, and Peter spoke of it. 
in very clear terms. Now, according to chapter 6, verse 3, God in His mercy gave them 120 years to repent. This is what it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Now that's not saying the obvious, because every human being is flesh. He is indeed flesh means that he, man is living by his flesh. His flesh controls every thought, every action. Godless. <coughs> completely non-spiritual. Living for the moment. Living for the desires. Living for the lusts of the flesh. Continually. And yet in spite of that, God says his days shall be 100 and 20 years. I'm going to give them 120 years to repent. Let not any man say that God is not merciful or he's not long-suffering with men. 120 years is a long time to get right with God. I know the thief on the cross got right almost in his dying breath, but we can't take that for granted. There's people who wouldn't have 120 minutes to get right with God. But God gave them 120 years. And all during this 120 years, Noah's words and Noah's work was a testimony and a witness to what was to come. And surely that 120 years when Noah preached and Noah worked and built the great ark, surely that would be enough, you would think, to turn men around to God. God will never be without a witness, even if it's just one person. You may be the only witness in your office. You may be the only witness in your whole family. You may be the only witness in your whole street. You may be the only witness in your whole classroom. But God will have his witness. Amen. And some of you have got unsaved loved ones who you've preached to a thousand times and they haven't responded. And you've turned them over to God in prayer. But God is a witness somewhere. And if you truly believe, God will bring someone across their path you, as a witness. Because they're not out of the reach of God. Sure they're not. Amen. And you just need one person in the right place at the right time to just say the right thing. And that can start a chain reaction. Hallelujah. Hebrews 11.7 tells that Noah was a man of faith. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear. <coughs> being divinely warned of things not seen. <coughs> Nothing to see. No evidence other than trust what God said. He moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
righteousness was imparted to men in the Old Testament because they believed God. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Noah believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. And notice in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Verse 12, So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. See, there are those who say that God doesn't care. God doesn't see what's going on. God has no interest. He may be a creator. In fact, he may have created the whole universe. <coughs> but he doesn't care a jot about it. He doesn't see. He doesn't care. The corruption, the wickedness, the evil, the injustice, the unfairness, the death, the disease, he doesn't care. He's not interested. But he does care. And he does see. Hallelujah. Then the Lord saw, for God looked upon the earth. And he will intervene when the time is right. See, God in his mercy gives men time to repent. In this case, apart from all the preaching that Noah had done before he gave them 120 years. He now sets a time and says, I'll give you 120 years. That would be enough, surely. And so God in his mercy gives men time to repent and to turn away from their sin. But if they do not, there comes a moment when God says, enough is enough. Sharpen the sickle. The time for judgment is ripe. Remember in Genesis 18 where <coughs> the whole situation about Sodom and Gomorrah? In Genesis 18, 20, and the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. I will go down and see. I have a personal interest in this. It has not gone unnoticed in heaven. And so people may say today, God doesn't care, he doesn't see, he's not interested, he's not involved. But he does see and he does care and he is involved. And the time will come when the whole world will know it. And so that world, that antediluvian world, as it's called, got 120 years to repent. This world has got now 2,000 years has been given to repent. And there's still many who have not repented. So never, ever charge God as being without mercy or without patience. I know there's a day coming when he will return. I know that's the day that we should look forward to as believers. But at the moment, it's a good job he hasn't come back because there are lots of our 
Loved ones are still not saved. And he's having mercy on them. And we should recognize that and pray for them or witness to them. Try to reach them before it's too late. No wonder the Bible says that God is gracious and slow to anger. But there will come a day when grace will give way to judgment. When Christ the Savior will be Christ the judge. When the Lamb will be the Lion. And 2,000 years ago, Matthew 24 and Luke 17, Jesus laid down a marker. He says, this is how you will know the day is approaching. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Even though it was wicked and evil and dangerous and corrupt and murderous, life went on just the same. And we're living in a generation today that's evil and wicked and corrupt and murderous. Every time you turn on your television, almost every day of the week now, somewhere in the world, people are being murdered wholesale, on large scale. But life goes on. Eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. But he said they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know. <laughs> until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so the world is full of wickedness and corruption. Will the world self-destruct? Will the world, the flesh, and the devil have the final say? Will things continually unabated until humanity finally destroys itself? Everybody says it cannot go on. But nobody's got an answer. Jesus in Matthew 24, speaking of the great tribulation period, in verse 21 and 22. For there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That lets you know that God ultimately is in control. And he'll only allow things to go so far and no further. Then he will intervene and do what he said he will do. So God comes to Noah with a plan. Build the boat. Build a really, really big boat. <laughs> In Genesis 6, 13 to 16, it gives you the dimensions of the ark. By faith Noah, Hebrews 11:7, by faith Noah being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household. 
by which he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah had no precedent for this. There were no other big boats. In fact, up to the 20th century, there never was a boat built bigger than Noah's Ark. Thirty cubits long, fifty cubits wide, thirty cubits high. Now, depending whether this was a Hebrew cubit, an Egyptian cubit, <laughs> or some other cubit, seeing that Moses wrote this narrative, perhaps we could assume that it was the Hebrew cubit which is 18 inches, which is roughly from your elbow to the tip of your index finger. So it was 300 cubits long, 20 cubits, sorry, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. So that's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Now to give you some kind of an idea about that, this room you're sitting in is 50 by 50 feet Give or take a few inches. So that's nine, Noah's Ark was nine times longer than this room you're sitting in. It was one and a half times wide. So another half of this width onto this. And at least four times as high as the ceiling you're sitting under. So this was huge, massive. It had three stories. How do we read on there? It had three stories, three decks. And each of those decks was divided up into, subdivided into various rooms, stalls for the animals, sleeping quarters for Noah and his family, places to eat, places to sleep. They reckon that the sheer size of this, that you could hold something at 500 boxcars, train carriages and such a boat as this. It had a door, it had a window that they released, that he released the dove and the raven through, but it also had a, a window, a cupid in size, so an 18 inch window all the way around the top of the boat for ventilation, for air, for a little bit of light in the top deck. So this was huge. He had nothing to go by. He had never seen anything like this. But since God gave Noah the dimensions, you can know for sure that God knew exactly what size to make it, exactly how many animals would be in it, and exactly how many people would be in it. It was made of gopher wood. Now we don't know what gopher wood is but we can be sure it was waterproof. Even in centuries past when they made ships, and generally they tried to use oak or some really hard wood that would last, that would take the rigors of oceans. So whatever this gopher wood was, it would be strong enough to withstand the powerful waves that it was going to encounter. <clears throat> it was to be covered with pitch, within and without. And whatever this pitch was, 
We're not sure exactly what that was, whether it was some resin from trees or whether it was bark of trees that were boiled down to make tar. I was watching a, a program there a wee while back with Ray Mears, you know, the outdoor guy, and he was stripping certain barks of certain trees and he was boiling it down, boiling it down, but it was like a tar that they used for their canoes to seal it. But ever this pitch was, Moses' basket in Egypt was also covered with this type of pitch also. Now the word pitch here is translated everywhere else as atonement. Atonement. In Leviticus 17, 11, I will give you blood as an atonement for your souls. The atonement for the soul was through the blood. Just as the pitch covered the ark and kept those inside from the judgment of the waves that God had sent. And so for those who come to Christ, salvation, for salvation, are protected by the blood of Christ from the wrath of God upon sin. So Noah's ark then is a type, it's a kind of the Lord Jesus Christ. The place where men are safe and covered and protected. There was a door made on the side. We don't know whether it was the bottom deck, middle deck, top deck. We don't know. But there was only one door. Only one way into this ark. And you can see the type there, can't you? Jesus says, I am the door. <coughs> of any man enter. He is our door of hope, isn't he? Yeah. And there's only one door. There's only one Christ. I am the way. Peter said, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul said, There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Only one door. Only one way. Christians get accused of being intolerant and narrow. Well, Jesus called it a narrow way, didn't he? And few there be that find it. And up until this point, remember Noah is acting by faith. He's trusting what God said. So all he's got to go on. Remember up to this point, there was no rain. <coughs> there was no rain. It was a mist that covered the earth, that watered the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, 
before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And so pre-flood times was entirely different than today. The whole weather system is entirely different than it was pre-flood. The very heavens above them are different. In Genesis, also one that says about the, <laughs> the waters above the firmament. Many believed there was a canopy, a vapor canopy surrounding the earth. And that's what God used to cause it to rain eventually. But up until then, there was no rain. Nobody had seen rain. Nobody knew what rain was. And so Noah is totally acting by faith of things not seen as yet. We walk by faith, not by sight. None of us, I'm sure, has ever actually seen Jesus, certainly not in the flesh. But we walk by faith, not by sight. We believe him. We trust him. And also in Genesis 2, further on down, it tells us that four rivers uh, come out of Eden. There was one river that parted into four. Pishon and Gihon and Hedekel and Euphrates. Now the Euphrates still exists today. It's a mighty river. And Hedekel is the Tigris River. Another mighty river that exists today. The other two we cannot geographically place. It looks like they have disappeared completely. Question. If no rain, where do the rivers come from? Because today you can't have rivers without rain. They came from underneath. Artesian there's lots of countries today that are as dry as a bone. They don't see rain for, some of them hardly ever sees rain, but there's still water that comes up from underneath. I was reading, <laughs> I was reading yesterday actually, that scientists believe they have discovered vast, vast underground oceans of water some more than the Arctic Ocean, underneath America, underneath parts of Asia. And it's not fluid water as we would know it. It's water that's trapped in the rocks. But when the rocks are pressurized enough, it releases the water. And they're absolutely convinced that underneath the mantle of the earth, between the upper mantle and the lower mantle, that there's these vast oceans of water. Now, isn't that interesting? And I'll tell you why. Because in chapter 7, verse 11, when it talks about when the flood came, it says, And all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Hmm. All the fountains of the great deep were broken up. You see, people today are saying, 
as far as we can see, and they're searching desperately to find another Earth-like planet like ours. Where did all the water come from? It must have came from comets. You know, for years and years, that's what astronomers believed, that the seas came from comets bombarding the Earth, those great giants of, of water and rock. Well, they've taken an awful lot of comets. I wonder how much of the Earth left to be bombarded with comets, let me tell you. You can see what a meteorite does. Never mind an asteroid, never mind a comet. But you see, they never believed the Bible. They'd never read the Bible. They'd never believe the Bible. The fountains of the deep, underneath the oceans even. There's even places where they found vast reservoirs underneath the crust of the earth. So God didn't have a problem flooding the earth. Everything was in place to do it. It just had to be released. As in the days of Noah, so shall the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. Will there ever be another flood? No. We'll talk about this tonight, part two of this. Will there be another flood? No. God promises there will never ever be another flood upon the earth. Local floods, fine, but not a worldwide flood. Put a rainbow in the sky for us. But Peter says, in the next worldwide judgment, it will be by fire, already stored up in the very atmosphere that we breathe. Is enough fire. The potential for fire is immense. That can burn this whole planet. So Peter says the next one won't be by flood, it will be by fire. Hmm. As in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. And who could argue that we are pretty close to those days? We're seeing the same pattern emerging. Wickedness, corruption, on national scales. <laughs> national scales. We see regimes like North Korea who are hell-bent on denying God and shaking their fist at God. We see a wickedness that's prevailing. But God will not let it go forever. No, he won't. He's promised he won't. And he will keep his word. But until that day comes, we must reach men and women for Christ. And who better to start than with your family? God in his mercy has delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. Scoffers in the last day, Peter says, will say, where is his coming? It's always been this way. It's never changed. But that's the mercy of God. That's the grace of God. But there'll come a moment when the mercy and grace will end. Thank God we're living in the day of grace, in the day of mercy. But that day will come to an end someday. 
And then there'll be nothing left but judgment to come. So these things are put here for our admonition. They're here for us to learn. That cause us to seek the Lord and to pray and to see the state the world's in and to know that God is in control of every single thing. Amen? Let's pray. Bless the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, because we have received it. We have been recipients of your grace and mercy. But Lord, we know that you're coming, and you're coming soon. We see a world, Lord, that's ripe for judgment. And yet in your mercy, you hold back, giving men time to turn. So we pray for our loved ones, our dear friends, neighbors, family members, Those, Lord, who are ignoring the signs of the times. Lord, those who perhaps mock and laugh and scorn. And yet, Lord, they do not realize they're on the edge of a precipice. So we pray for them. We pray, Lord, in your mercy. And in the time you have allotted them, we pray, Lord, that they will turn to you. That someone will speak a word in season. And Lord, their hearts will be strangely warmed. And they realize, Lord, their lostness. And they'll come to you. Lord, we think of family members that we have talked to so many times. And yet they seem unmoved. Lord, we hand them over to you. Only your Holy Spirit can soften a hard heart. We pray, O oh God, that you will do that. Think of brothers and sisters, moms and dads, grannies and grandas. Think of cousins. so many outside the kingdom. So Lord, we pray that you will reach out to them in mercy and draw them by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that they will bend the knee. Thank you for your patience with us, for your tender mercies, Lord, that give us time and space. We bless you for that. Lord, we would not be sitting here today if it wasn't for your grace and mercy. And we are eternally grateful.
so, Lord, as we turn our thoughts towards your table here, we think of that great price you paid, the ultimate show of mercy and grace. Lord, you gave everything for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.